one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 528 for the week of Monday, September 9th, 2013, which fun fact is the exact date of our four-year anniversary. My name is Sawyer Rosenstein and joining us this week is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Ah, Sawyer, whoever said that uh, once shuttle was over, things were over with with, the Uh, space oh boy we got a show for you tonight to prove all everybody out there are totally wrong indeed even though the last two weeks were all shuttle we got plenty more non-shuttle stuff and welcome as well mark ratterman hello again and uh i just informed a co-worker today that nasa had not pretty much shut down that there was still a lot going on and he was surprised well when you take a look at the list of stuff that we have it is certainly not surprising, and our first story is evidence of that, and the entire northeast coast of the United States was abuzz with this story and an interesting launch, and Gene, I believe you're going to take that one. Oh, yeah. NASA's Lunar Atmospheric and Dust Environmental Environment Ex- Explorer, there, I got that one out, or LADEE for short, uh, started on its long 30-day mission out to the lunar surface. Uh, on, or should I say, out to the lunar orbit, I'm sorry. Um, uh, it's, it uh, started out its mission on, uh, on Friday night at 11.27 p.m. Eastern, Eastern Daylight Time. And, wow, it was right, the launch was right on time, 11.27.00. You never hear, hear something like that. The other thing, too, during launch that you know I've noticed during launch of this thing is that you never hear, or very rarely do you hear, 0% chance of weather uh, you know, curtailing launch. And that's what we had. It was just it was just an absolutely incredible evening for an inaugural flight of a of a new booster. In this case, Orbital Sciences Minotaur Five configuration uh, to launch uh, to do something that really had never been done before, and that is to shoot for the moon, but from the Mid Atlantic coast. And uh, there were a lot of firsts in this mission to just go ahead and. Uh, grab a little bit of uh, some fun stuff here from Orbital Sciences' website. Again, this was the uh, first launch of the Minotaur 5 configuration. A little bit about that. Um, Minotaur 5 can trace its lineage all the way to the old Peacekeeper missile. And some of those uh, solid rocket motors that used to be pointed at um, a potential uh, enemy in anger you know, with... Um, Nuclear with nuclear weapons on board them. 
were now being used to go ahead and launch a spacecraft for science's sake. It was the first five-stage vehicle ever flown by Orbital Sciences. And again, as, as, as I had mentioned, the first Peacekeeper-based vehicle launched from Wallops, the Wallops Island Flight Facility, uh, which is operated by NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. It was the first lunar mission that Orbital Sciences ever flew. And it was the first lunar mission from Wallops Island that uh, uh, was ever flown. So a lot of firsts that uh, in 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 uh, in Friday. But uh, it's again the this experiment package is a modular design, which I thought was absolutely ingenious. Um, this one comes in about five segments, but if I understand the the design rationale from the Ames Research Center that actually built the spacecraft. And, and again, this is also a uh, spacecraft that NASA built in-house, uh, did not rely on a contractor on this one. It was totally built within NASA Ames. So hats off to, to, uh, to that center. Uh, so again, the whole rationale was to go ahead and try to build this thing in a modular design so that you can probably reuse some of these segments over and over, reuse some of these segments or, or basically set it up in such a manner manner that you can use segments for something else. You can make it bigger, smaller. I believe, too, so I, and, and you can check me on this one because I know you, you were at one point over attached to, uh, to Goddard for a little bit. I believe, too, there's a, there's a lander segment that could theoretically be used on, on, uh, on, on, this, particular, uh, on, on this particular bus. Uh, but on this, in this instance, it, it's not going to be used. But the spacecraft, again, is, is very, very versatile. And if this works out, it could be used for various other things. Not this particular spacecraft. This particular spacecraft, once the science mission starts, has a 100-day day lifetime. But uh, other iterations of this can be, again, used for other things. We might actually see this bus possibly going out to Mars, say. So... And it, but and I also believe too. This is probably a, a a relatively inexpensive mission as well. So there's a lot of things to to look at as far as far as this particular ship is concerned. Uh, but why are we doing this to begin with? Well, Laddie's mission really is to go ahead and study the tenuous atmosphere of of the moon. Not a lot of people know that the moon has an atmosphere, but uh, this this particular spacecraft will go ahead and study that 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 small, very, very ultra-thin atmosphere. The idea, too, is to try to scan its constituent parts and try to also see, too, if there might be any, oh, dare I say, sort of water particles kind of floating around somewhere. Because as we've also discovered, the moon is, is a much wetter place than we actually thought. It was kind of funny. We thought that back, uh, oh, shoot, back during the Apollo days. But uh, we we chalked it up to uh, possible contamination from uh, from the Earth when we were examining the lunar uh, uh, the lunar regolith uh, samples brought back by Apollo. They, there was some water kind of sort of turning up in those samples, and we we dismissed it. But uh, um, in some sense, too, Laddie is following the uh, the, the uh, in the footsteps of uh, L. Cross and uh, trying to, to build on that mission a little bit and understand the, uh, the, the, uh, the lunar environment a little bit more. Uh, why are we looking at the moon right now? Well, 
right now the moon is relatively well quiescent for the time being. However, it might get visitors sometime in the not-too-distant future. There's some ruminations here about possibly a lunar mission. China has lunar aspirations as well. Um, So during this little hiatus, it was probably a good idea to go ahead and check out the moon and see what what was going on there. So, uh, again, Laddie's going to deliver some really interesting science along the way. And I believe there is a 30-day... it's basically Laddie's basically taking the the scenic route to the moon. It's a it's going to be a thirty day mission, but during that period of time too, the spacecraft will be going through a a, de- a commissioning process to make sure things are operating uh, very very well. Uh, there was a little bit of a scare over the weekend. Uh, apparently, uh, the reaction wheels a piece of software had commanded Laddie's reaction wheels the. Uh, uh, used to, to point and stabilize the spacecraft, uh, those reaction wheels inadvertently shut down. It, it was basically due to some oversensitive software, and they're going to go ahead. The folks over at Ames, which, who are uh, essentially in command of this particular mission, uh, while NASA Goddard is going to be essentially the point center for uh, for science, uh, the folks over at NASA Ames are taking a look at the problem, and they'll probably they'll, they'll get a fix up to up to the spacecraft soon. But again, it's not a it's not a total and complete you know showstopper of a of an issue. But uh, again, the what, what I found absolutely amazing was just the um, uh, just just the way this whole mission for at least in this corner of of the United States here in the Northeast Corridor. Or the Mid Atlantic region was was uh, was accepted and looked at. People were excited about it. There were some lovely pictures of the launch, uh, not just from Wallops Island, from folks over at Wallops Island that had seen the launch. I had a lot of a lot of uh, uh, people uh, show me some video that they had taken uh, of the uh, of the launch uh, and some exquisite video out there too. If anybody's interested in taking a look, but was the interesting part of it was you very rarely see a a moon rocket whizzing past um, some iconic buildings in New York City, and there was one photograph uh, that was taken from atop uh, uh, the Rockefeller Center, uh, pointing at the Empire State Building and off in the distance, uh, uh, One World Trade uh, of the. Uh, of the Minotaur five, you know, reaching for the stars. And it was just, wow, that's something you don't normally get to see here in the mid Atlantic region. So it was a lot of excitement. There was also a lot of excitement too. in uh, in the Delmarva region, I mean, um, there was a, I believe there is a, a museum over there that was, uh, uh, touting, you know, hand, you know, selling moon pies and and blue moon beer and all this other stuff to to folks who are who are uh, around to watch the launch. I think that was uh, out of uh, that report was out of Del Marva now, but uh, there just seemed to be an awfully awful lot of excitement about about the mission. I, from what I hear, the hotels in the area were absolutely sold out. 
uh, you, you couldn't get a room, you know, at all for this particular, if you wanted to, for this particular event. And it was, uh, it was kind of neat to see too, I guess for, uh, from a tourist standpoint, it was a, it was a feather in the cap as well, because this came just as the quote tourist season, close quote around here in the mid Atlantic region was kind of sort of coming to an end. And, uh, uh, that was probably giving uh, the, the Delmarva region anyway a good shot in the arm. But uh, uh, again, from a from a science standpoint, this is, is going to be an exciting mission. I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, what Laddie uh, picks up. Um, again, to just really really quick to let you know too, this is a 100 day you know this is 100 day day flight. Uh, the spacecraft will, after after the the, uh, the mission is over and the spacecraft is decommissioned, it will indeed uh, have share the same fate as the two Grail spacecraft uh, had, where it will impact into uh, the lunar surface. But unlike, uh, um, you know, unlike the, I believe those two spacecraft, there won't be a you know a pinpoint uh, uh, impact. This one will just you know they'll just you know. Boom! There isn't a, a set place where they'll, they'll go ahead and allow the the spacecraft to auger in. In fact, it may actually be out of range of the lunar reconnaissance orbiter once it does impact. So um, there's no way to know. Hopefully, it will be it will be in range, and hopefully, uh, LRO will be able to take some pictures and and do some uh, uh, readings additionally with uh, any you know, water uh, indications as well. So. Uh, but again, this is you know, let's not talk about the the end of the mission first. Let's get on with with the beginning of it because it's 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 underway. And if anybody's really interested, I mean, I, there was one news report where this thing, where they had the spacecraft being eight stories high. I'm like, wait a minute, no, 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 maybe you know, I no, 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 no. Uh, the spacecraft is really only about the size of a smart car. If anybody's really everybody anybody seen one of those things, so it's really not all that big. Uh, but it's it's going to deliver a good punch science-wise. And if anybody's interested in learning more, hit uh, hit NASA.gov. Uh, there's some very very interesting uh, uh, in, you know, information out there about uh, about the spacecraft. Uh, the press kit's also available, and uh, also some of the configurations that they have for the uh, for the spacecraft. Again, this this does have a lander component, or uh, one is being examined. And uh, for for Laddie for 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 this this particular bus, I'm sorry, um, for for the future. So again, hats off to uh, the Ames Research Center for coming up with such a, a a really intriguing vehicle that could be used for a whole myriad of possibilities. And uh, hats off to the science science folks. I'm sure they're eager to get uh, around to the moon and and uh, and start uh, start study. This will be this will be a really cool mission, and I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Exactly. You don't hear much about lunar missions, and a couple of things I noted. That one, a lot of people were saying this is the first time we're going back to the moon in years. When people forget about um, LRO and L Cross, which I believe was 2009. Right. Um, another one is that it's a going to land on the moon. I believe ABC News was reporting that one, which no, it's not. It's an orbiter. Um, it was just interesting things like that, but I think the coolest thing of all of this was everybody actually going out in the Northeast and seeing it. It was a pretty big deal, and I know a bunch of people who went out and saw it um, at my hometown in New Jersey. There was a bunch of people watching. I saw a couple of observation 
a couple of viewing parties who were doing star parties as well throughout New York State. Um, I saw it about 500 miles away from the launch site if you were going, you know, straight through the air, not by roads. Um, about 500 miles away, and I was still able to see it from the ninth floor of the building that I'm in. And it it was really cool seeing a small orange dot just arc across the sky. And you would never expect something like that in central New York State. So, Yeah, seeing that just makes your, your the back of your... your... The, the hairs in the back of your neck kind of stand up and go, whoa, because you know exactly where this thing's going. And uh, it, it's very rare in this, Mark, I know where you live, uh, it, it's, it, it's sort of a, not exactly a, a, an everyday occurrence, but you, it, it's, it, it's part of life living in that, that area of Florida, um, especially if, if, I know you're up in the, in the northern area, but um I, I I would imagine that it's that uh, stuff is visible over there. Over here, I, I, it's a big deal, and and because it's a rarity for us here in in, in the Northeast uh, and in in the Mid Atlantic region. And uh, uh, I'm I'm glad that finally we're we're getting a little bit of the excitement. So um, hats off to the folks over at the uh, over at Mars. Uh, the Mid Atlantic Regional Spaceport for getting all this together, and uh, and at NASA Goddard and and at Wallops Island and and at Ames and everybody involved in the mission. Uh, hats off to y'all, and I'm looking forward to the science results now. Indeed, congrats to Mars on launching to the moon. And Laddie <laughs> is. I had to, and uh, Laddie is scheduled to enter lunar orbit as of right now. October 6th. Alrighty then, so let's move on to a couple of other spacecraft. While we're talking about spacecraft themselves rather than rockets so much, we'll talk about the Japanese HTV, which HTV-4, their fourth flight, Japan's, I should add, HTV-4, Japan's fourth resupply mission to the International Space Station, completed its job and was undocked and re-entered and burned up in the atmosphere, as planned, on Wednesday, September 4th. It was launched back on August 3rd, so it was there for about a month before it was deorbited. The crew took out all the supplies, threw in some garbage and stuff they didn't need, and departed that. And that went all according to plan. Now, speaking of Japan, they have another rocket actually not so much resupply vehicle but a rocket that was scheduled to launch on its first flight back in august the original launch of the epsilon rocket on august 27th was scrubbed about a second or so before launch because of a computer glitch apparently it detected a change in the altitude of the 80 foot tall rocket um, when in actuality everything was perfectly fine it was just a little sensor glitch so they're going to try again to launch the rocket. This time, the projected launch date is no earlier than Saturday, September 14th, just off of the southern coast of Japan. Now, this rocket is entirely solid fuel, and it's launching the, we'll say, Sprint A. is the Spectroscopic Planet Observatory for Recognition of Interaction of Atmosphere, Boy, we are full of lots of long-winded acronyms today. But basically, it's a UV telescope that will observe the atmospheres of Venus, Mars, um, and can also study the magnetosphere of Jupiter. So 
that is scheduled, as mentioned, for no earlier than Saturday. Japan's keeping busy. Yeah, and uh, again, uh, uh, HTV had to get out of there. So is the ISS, by the way. Uh, there's been a lot of vehicles making a uh, a call at uh, at ISS. In fact, uh, we have it. We the, the ISS crew expedition thirty six is coming down. I believe tomorrow. Uh, they had the uh, transfer of command ceremony earlier today, Monday. Uh, as we record this, it's uh, Monday, September ninth. And uh, uh, the transfer of command uh, uh, ceremony occurred, uh, I believe, around, and, and forgive me for not converting to GMT, I'm being lazy, uh, I believe that was around 2.30, I guess somewhere around that range, uh, Eastern Daylight time so there there's a there's a new uh, uh commander of the uh, international space station right now and uh also i believe uh crew coming home is uh, chris cassidy on board uh so uh, they they will start their uh uh route down uh, tomorrow um tomorrow evening here in uh on the uh in the uh, east of the uh, united states anyway and uh, so that's that's one thing um, there'll be another vehicle paying a call on the International Space Station quite soon. We'll get into that later. Uh, but <clears throat> Sawyer, yeah, yeah, I believe this is this is Japan's first foray into an entirely solid uh, rocket vehicle, is it not? Yeah, exactly. This is um, their first entirely solid rocket fueled rocket, which is. It's a pretty big deal because I mean they have their H two launch vehicle, which has been launching the HDV, which is what the H stands for, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, H two, yeah, and also to the management of this particular vehicle, from what I've read, is is quite fascinating. I mean, uh, one article I think I'm trying to remember where it was. I don't think it was on the JAXA website. It was some. It, it, it don't don't quote me here. I'm, I'm trying to remember the source, and I can't. Um, but it it basically said the the vehicle is really automated. And uh, from what I understand, you could go ahead, open up a laptop at a Starbucks and run this vehicle. Uh, That's how um, uh, one technician kind of joked about it. I mean, the the Epsilon could literally fly itself. It's that sophisticated as far as its computers are concerned. Uh, it really doesn't need a lot of monitoring, uh, so that that's one of the other pluses that uh, that this particular vehicle has uh, in line for it. And I guess that that's a a huge deal keeping keeping operating costs down. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, Japan doesn't have one of the largest budgets in when it comes to space. I mean, they still have a pretty decent sized budget when you compare it to other countries, but. You know, it's great to see JAXA being a player in all of this again. Yeah, they're going to have some, and unfortunately, Japan's got a lot of uh, hurdles to to jump over. And I don't know if space is actually going to be a a, a huge priority right now with with them, uh, given some of the uh, you know, the cleanup they have left over from the tsunami. Uh, uh, what was it, about a year ago? And now the um, uh, uh, now the 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 uh, eco you know the the technological disaster that the uh, that nuclear reactor of theirs has become so they may be a little bit more close to the vest as as things go come forward uh, 
in in space flight right now. But uh, once they get their their domestic house straightened out, I'm sure they're going to unleash Epsilon with uh, with all its fury, so to speak, and and really start going after uh, our launch market. So it'll it'll be kind of fun to to sit back and see what uh, what comes of all this. But uh, again, Epsilon is a, is an impressive vehicle, and uh, wishing uh, wishing Jaxa all the best with it. Same. And just as a follow-up to what you were mentioning earlier, the Expedition 36 crew, you're correct, The was handed over today the control of the International Space Station to Fyodor Chinkin, who is now in charge. And the crew of three of Expedition 36 is scheduled to land in Kazakhstan at 10.58 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, my apologies for lack of conversion to UTC. We will work on that, we promise, four years later. <laughs> yeah, I'll, they'll, they'll, I've, I've been held in irons so many times over there. It's ridiculous. I apologize, guys. We Americans are lazy. I'm sorry. And that brings us to the end of round number one. And for round number two, we're going to go to Gene with another launch once again out of Virginia coming up. Yeah, we're, sorry. Thanks a lot. We're going back out to Wallops Island, Virginia, and the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport because there's some new activity that's going to be going on there. Uh, on September 17th, uh, Orbital Sciences is due to launch its first cargo vehicle. Now, as we, as everybody knows, the uh, uh, the Antares vehicle launched back in in April, uh, went very, very well, uh, and delivered a uh, a a small little, you know, uh, sig- what they what they're calling a Cygnus simulant into. Uh, into into uh, Earth orbit there. Now they're going to deliver the real thing. The uh, the Cygnus spacecraft is set to make its maiden voyage for its COTS demo flight, and I believe its mission will be to go ahead and rendezvous and dock and stay on sta- and stay on station um, with the ISS for about thirty days before it also uh, leaves the ISS and and. Uh, Unlike the Dragon uh, by SpaceX, Cygnus is not designed is not designed to uh, survive reentry but burn up in the atmosphere. Uh, Cygnus is about maybe uh, twelve feet in height. Uh, it's about ten feet in diameter. Um, it, it's a it's a it's a vehicle that was essentially uh, the cargo end of it was built by uh, the same folks that uh, brought brought you. Uh, uh, the multi-purpose uh, logistics modules or MPLMs from the shuttle, um, but uh, again, this this is this is uh, another exciting piece, and it looks like uh, this particular spacecraft may be uh, in charge of getting cargo out to the International Space Station for at least a little bit for at least the next three next three flights. So apparently, uh, there was a report uh, out um, that was by uh, Space News. Uh, I'm looking at an article written by Dan Leone on September 5th, uh, basically saying that um, SpaceX may not be delivering uh, cargo to the International Space Station until next year. Uh, the, uh, the the explanation given was that due to uh, the uh, upcoming launch of its upgraded uh, Falcon 9 uh, vehicle, which they want to make sure they get right, 
um, and a few other constraints, uh, they will not be able to go ahead and visit the ISS, at least not for the not for the remainder of this year. Now there was some speculation about that earlier, but uh, it looks like that's that's actually going to happen. And uh, Mike Suffordini, uh, who is the who is NASA's uh, ISS program manager, basically said that uh, well, it's time, and I'm going to quote him: "It's time for us to really start having flights." on a regular basis. Uh, and it looks like uh, there's about three uh, Cygnus um, vehicles in, in various states of, uh, of construction. And if all goes well with COTS-1 for, for Cygnus, which is again scheduled to launch as of right now, um, on September 17th, if that mission goes, that 30-day mission goes flawless, uh, expect to see the first uh, cargo run that Cygnus is going to make in December of this year. So it looks like not only the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport is going to be kind of busy, but it looks like the ISS is going to be kind of busy with all of these visiting vehicles. And again, NASA seems adamant. They really, really want to see, um, you know, these cargo runs happen. And I can't blame them right now. I and mean, we, we, do, do we do have a space station to run. And it is now com- totally and completely dependent on, uh, on these private companies to deliver cargo to the International Space Station. And I have to wonder, though, I mean, I know I've been accused of bashing SpaceX in the past, but um, I kind of wonder if they've bitten off a little bit more than they could chew at the moment. Because, again, you really want to make sure this new iteration of, of, of Falcon works. And I believe, too, there's some grasshopper technology. If nobody's, uh, if, if, the, if somebody in the audience isn't uh, aware of what grasshopper is, as Grasshopper is essentially a re- totally reusable booster system. And I believe this iteration of Falcon will go ahead and test some of that. I believe the, uh, the sec- at least the, the, uh, the first stage of, of this new Falcon booster is scheduled to, quote, soft land, close quote, in the Pacific Ocean and be recovered uh, for later, later reuse. And uh, they want to make sure that this is going to work. Right. So I can't blame SpaceX for wanting to make sure all their I's are dotted and all their T's are crossed for this. But um, to go ahead and, 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 and dive in uh, to that and kind of push off some, some deliveries that maybe Dragon might have made otherwise, I don't know if that's wise business. Um, but again, I can totally understand. Uh, they've got, they've, they want to make sure that their crew uh, uh, version of Dragon is, is, is that program is going. They want to make sure that they've got uh, the the booster uh, working right. Uh, um, but again, you know, you might have to you know sort of rehash some things. Whereas I think whereas I think Orbital is is in a in a position uh, to kind of shine here. Now both of both of these folks have. Um, contracts, I believe, through 2016, and then uh, NASA will be renegotiating those contracts uh, at 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 some time. I guess I, I guess it's uh, around the the second quarter of uh, of 2014. Um, 
or somewhere around there. I may be wrong on that. Check my time. But I know I've heard somewhere early 2014 they're, they're going to start looking at, uh, uh, at future cargo vehicles and future cargo runs to the ISS. Uh, so a lot hinges on, on, on this. And, and Orbital, too, has, has got to be feeling the heat right now because uh, Cygnus now has got to work. Um, if it doesn't, we've, we've got some problems. Uh, but I've, I'm fully anticipating uh, Cygnus to work out and work very well. If, if Dragon was any indication on in how well SpaceX made the uh, the rendezvous of uh, of their first COTS demo vehicle uh, back in, I believe it was May of uh, of last year, with the first uh, 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 Dragon making a, a call on on the ISS, uh, Cygnus also should. It, Cygnus also should should go ahead and do do very well. Um, and again, if it, if these two companies succeed that are currently going ahead and and getting cargo up to the International Space Station, if they succeed, then the International Space Space Station succeeds, and that's really really the the important uh, the important part of this. So uh, a lot hinges on both um, both Dragon and Cygnus, but particularly right now. Uh, Cygnus, so Orbital's got to be feeling a little bit of heat, but I think uh, knowing those folks the way I know them, uh, I think they're they're up to the task, and uh, I'm looking forward to to seeing uh, uh, a good flight on the 17th. Exactly. I mean, the big thing here is what we've talked about before. It's opening up the game for commercial space as a whole. It's not so much SpaceX or Orbital or who's better or which is better. You know, obviously it's bad for SpaceX that they may not launch this year at this rate. But there's, like you said, the International Space Station is winning with this commercial partnership as well as NASA is winning. The American people are winning because this is now a commercial endeavor on top of it. It allows NASA to focus on more things and just pay them to say, hey, all right, you deliver stuff to our space station. And as long as Orbital is able to prove themselves with Cygnus on this flight and then the next one, I would assume, as well, you know, two successful flights, it's good in my books. Yeah, exactly. And good point, sorry that you made. I mean, this isn't about uh, who's this isn't about who's better right now. I mean, there is a competition like it or not. Uh, and that, that's that's just the way business works. But uh Again, if if the whole notion of this this commercialized endeavor works, that means the ISS is in good shape, and it's not just good for the United States. I think it's good for all the international partners involved in this. So uh, uh, again, we'll be watch- I'll be watching uh, Cygnus with great interest on the seventeenth, and keep my fingers crossed that everything works again. Um, believe the mission is about 30 days in duration it will rendezvous and be berthed to the international space station I believe it is carrying some components uh for for iss and just as an aside too it was reported uh I believe uh by collect space our, uh, our our good friend robert perlman over there reported that uh, orbital sciences has named uh this particular Cygnus vehicle after uh, one of the gentlemen that made it possible, a um, gentleman by the name of David Lowe, who is uh, George Lowe's son. He was a three-time shuttle astronaut before leaving NASA and joining Orbital. 
and he was pivotal um, in getting Cygnus off the ground. Unfortunately, we lost uh, David Lowe to cancer a while back ago, and uh, as a result, uh, uh, as a, uh, a memorial to him, this particular Cygnus vehicle is being named named for uh, for David Lowe, so I thought I should go ahead and add that. Exactly, a nice homage, and uh, all the best of luck to Orbital and to Cygnus. Now, this is actually a pretty interesting transition into the next story, which is one that I actually just discovered shortly before recording. This was released on today's date, September 9th, by Reuters. And um, this is that the U.S. Department of Defense and NASA, um, in a cooperation with the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, more acronyms, have come up with a number based on approximations of everything, since they don't have a very similar way of keeping track of their budgets. But they were able to figure out that they are expected to spend about $44 billion, with a B, to launch government satellites and other spacecraft through 2018. And that includes $28 billion in procurement funding. So basically, if you don't know, the GAO, it's kind of like a watchdog agency to take a look at how everyone's using their money in a way. So they were able to analyze Pentagon and NASA budget documents and figure out how much that's going to cost. So that's about $44 billion. And as they say, that's in quote-unquote then-year dollars that factor in anticipated inflation. So this is a pretty big number. And they also talk about this in the article about how NASA and the Pentagon both are trying to introduce more competition because normally it's ULA, United Launch Alliance, and um, Lockheed Martin, Boeing. But they're trying to include SpaceX and Orbital now as new partners to try and spread out the competition and spread out where those $44 billion are going. I, I think that's a surprising number. Do you? Yeah, I'd love to hear how they arrived at that since since NASA's proposed budget is only in the range of about six, you know, sixteen point eight billion dollars for this, you know, for for the upcoming fiscal year. If you if you want to go ahead and believe what uh, the House of Representatives wants to give NASA, I know uh, the Senate wants to give eighteen, but I'm, I'm sure the the compromise is going to be somewhere in between there. But so we'll just we'll just kind of you know pick a, a point and say seventeen billion dollars. Um, that's going to be the the grand total of what NASA's allowed to spend. Um, I, I'd really love to to understand how they got their numbers and if, through twenty eighteen. I um, guess the, the, they're they're really they're really. Are there, this is obviously a combined number between NASA and DOD. I mean, DOD is launching all sorts of communication satellites and and other um, you know surveillance and and spy satellites and what have you. Whereas NASA is launching you know interplanetary probes and and uh, and other spacecraft. No, but um, I can give I, you the I can give you the breakdown if you'd like. Yeah, please. Um, here's what it says. To quote the Reuters article, quote. Gao said planned procurement funding of $28 billion accounted for about 65% of the total amount through fiscal 2018, with the Pentagon accounting for about $16 billion of that amount. Combined research, development, and testing activities accounted for about $11 billion, or 26%. 
NASA accounts for the lion's share of that projected funding, or $10.5 billion, including about $7 billion on its work on a launch vehicle and the ground systems needed to support human exploration of deep space, end quote. So SLS is in there. Hmm, curiouser and curiouser. Yeah, the, those that's their numbers. And again, all of this was through um, combined looking at budget documents. That's how hmm. they came up with the numbers. But that's an, I like how they have the breakdown of that, but it's an interesting breakdown. And in that they are still accounting in $7 billion for the SLS over wow. the next five years. Yeah, that, that, and keep in mind, SLS is going to be launched for the very first time, projected currently um, in 2017. Uh, its first piloted launch carrying the Orion spacecraft is due, if you're ready for this, uh, in uh, 2021. Now, bear in mind, too, that will make 10 years between the la- between wheel stop on Atlantis and um and getting uh, Orion off so it's uh, the, it it kind of shows where we are budget wise and uh, NASA's own IG and I think I might have mentioned this a couple of weeks back uh did a study as well as far as how that's going along and it's frightening and we'll we'll talk about that on another program but it's um not the way NASA wants to design SL not, not SLS or Orion uh, but it's sort of the box they've been painted into. And and again, this is all due to sequestration. This is all due to, to budget requests and uh, or lack thereof. And uh, it's going to get scarier and scarier, uh, I think, as we move on. And, and uh, obviously, this has national security implications as well. So... Interesting, um, interesting math lesson. I'll be be very, very interested to see. Um, of course, well, I'm not going to know for a couple of years yet, but it'd be interesting to see what the results of that uh, that whole thing really, really are, and what the projections, if the projections are correct. Exactly. And keep in mind, this article was released only about two hours before recording, so no real time for general reactions from other people or from NASA or anything about this yet, but still just an interesting short article on with big implications. Yeah, I'll have to have to find that study sort and go through it and through it in its entirety because I, I would really, really like to see what the numbers are and how they arrived at it. And I'd still also because I'm also thinking about uh, uh, something we reported on earlier, uh, uh, Mr. John Strickland and his numbers concerning SLS. I'm still kind of sort of crunching those numbers, so we'll have to have to see what uh, who's right and who's wrong. We'll have a number crunching episode where you, the listener, don't have to do any math, so <laughs> it'll be somewhat enjoyable. All right, um, so we are going to move on to our third and final round, which we're going to rapid fire a couple of quick stories. So let's begin with Gene and uh, a pretty famous flight controller with some pretty strong words. Yeah, uh, a uh, acquaintance of mine, Eric Berger, had a had a, a really good uh, interview with uh, essentially a living legend uh, in space, uh, Mister, uh, or should I say, Doctor Christ- Christopher Kraft. Uh, 
for those of you who are not familiar with Doctor with uh, with Chris Kraft, he was the one who basically came up with Mission Control from you know the, from the get go, uh, and has written a, an interesting uh, uh, interesting book called Flight. So uh, if, if you, you folks are interested, anybody's interested, I, I would really really suggest you go ahead and pick it up because he pulls no punches. And in this interview that uh, Eric Berger conducted for um, his uh, uh, newspaper, the Houston Chronicle, uh, he writes a, a piece called "The Psy Guy." Um, Chris Kraft basically pulled no, pulled no punches here, and he is plainly dissatisfied on the way things are going currently with our space program. Um, he's not a big proponent of the space launch system. Basically says it's too expensive. Uh, it's extraordinarily expensive to develop, he says. And um, when they actually, he said he predicts that the budget for SLS is just simply going to go haywire uh, because of the development costs. Um, they will. He predicts that uh, SLS is going to run into you know development issues, which again will drive the cost of developing the vehicle. You know, straight up, and he actually predicts uh, that this thing is going to literally eat NASA alive. Quote, close quote. They ever get there? Um, he says they're not going to be able to fly this thing any more than twice a year. And uh, uh, so, and, and to quote the, the article directly, so what? It, what you got is a beast of a rocket. I'll give you all this capability, which you can't build upon because you don't have the money to build it in the first place, and you can't operate can't operate it if you had the money. So he's he's not a, a huge fan of the space launch system at all. Um, he basically says, "Let's use what we've got. You've got Atlas, you've got Delta. The Europeans have got Ariane. The Russians have a." A uh, list of uh, rockets which are are you know reliable. Um, well, lately the Russians have been having some problems, so I'll, I'll disagree with uh, Mr. K- no, with uh, with Chris Kraft there. But um, they still have a have a stable of vehicles which could be put into the mix. Of course, we also have you know Falcon Heavy under development here. We have Falcon Nine. Under development, uh, you know the Antares and so on, um, and of course the uh, you know of course the old standbys. So we we do have a, a relatively good, healthy, stable of vehicles that could we could probably put to work to go ahead and kind of pick up the slack from where SLS might leave off. Um, but he doesn't really think that that SLS is a great idea. Um, He's um, also saying that uh, he's not a huge proponent of the uh, asteroid mission at all. Um, he's he would rather see us go back to the moon. He says a lot of a lot of countries are saying you know they want to go to the moon. Well, why don't we go ahead and partner with, with them? Bring Europe on board. Bring Russia on board. Bring bring Japan on board, and and use the the consortium that we built with the International Space Station. This partner partnership list of nations that we have and use their all of their cap- their combined capabilities to to go to the moon he thinks the moon is a a, a great place to, for for manufacturing 
he envisions in the article that you could probably go ahead and, and make solar panels, you know, on site that you can generate electricity from, you know, for for a potential lunar base or even sending back to Earth if you wanted wanted to. Um, he he gives a bit of a homage to uh, to Neil Armstrong here. Uh, saying, quote, too bad he's gone because he was such an important spokesman for uh, for being, you know, adverse to what the political part of NASA says we're going to do, quote, close quote. Um, he was very critical of uh, the current administrator or the current NASA administrator here, General Bolden. Uh, basically saying he's a he was he was he's a great Marine. He's a great, you know, flyer. Um, but he doesn't know what it, what it takes to do a massive program. He he actually criticizes Bolden for even thinking about Mars in around the twenty thirty time frame. Uh, but he says, "Why would you want to go to Mars because of um, the uh, the time that you that you have for for transmissions back and forth?" If you he he looks at it from a standpoint of operations and basically says. Uh, you go to the moon, you got what a three second interval you know between your your spacecraft on site and your people on site and you back on earth between Mars and earth that 's forty minutes, and that 's a heck of a long time and he says i don 't know why you 'd want to do that. I disagree with 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 Chris Kraft there. I think Mars should be a potential next step, but I think first we have to learn how to go into planetary. So we learn those skills, we hone those skills, and I, I sort of agree with with going going to uh, uh, back to uh, the moon and back to to landing there and using its resources to possibly use the moon as a jump off point to go to Mars. Um, he's, you know, he basically is in total agreement with. With with the robotic end of things on Mars, he he's, he thinks very highly of Curiosity, but um, he's not so much so on, on a human mission, which I found a little bit 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 of a surprise. But the real big deal I thought was where he went to uh, the Johnson Space Flight Center and talked to some co-op students over there, um, and he mentioned. I mean, we talked about it here on this program that that. Uh, uh, NASA Johnson style video that was done a while back ago. Uh, it was a done, done, you know, tongue firmly in cheek, and it was done, done all in fun. But he just says, "Look, you've spent all this time making a movie. Now, how about you know putting all of that effort that you made in making that movie into making the space program go, especially the human part of it?" He says, "Give me your body and your mind." to work on those kind of things, you know, and, but he says, I really thought, and I'll quote him right here. I really thought the video was beautiful, but that's not why you're here. Um, you guys are the future of the program. And he basically said, if you know, if we can't keep you interested, then we've lost it. Um, and that's why he, he feels too. A lot of astronauts are, are going off and doing other things uh, because, you know, they don't think the, the the ISS is compelling enough. They want to they want to go places. They want to explore, and and the ISS is just you know, in his eyes is just a, a tin can that goes around the Earth every every ninety minutes. 
Um, in his eyes, it takes three people to maintain it and three people to do the science, 24 hour, hours a day, seven days a week. And so that's not what, a, in his eyes, that's not what astronauts should be doing. They should be going off, doing exploration and not, you know, all this, 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 you know, sort of playing guinea pig here. Um, in a way, too, I kind of disagree with, 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 with Chris there. I think, the, admittedly, it's not exploration um, in, in the classical sense, but it's sort of laying down the groundwork for future exploration and, and trying to learn more about the microgravity environment. So I mean, it is grunt work sometimes, but it's necessary grunt work, I think. Um, but it was an absolutely intriguing article, and if, um, we'll we'll get the the the, the uh, link to it on 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 the website. But um, again, uh, Chris Craft is not known for a guy that that keeps his opinions to himself, and um, he is he's very direct, very blunt, and uh, the whole article is well worth the read. Um, I would really, really suggest you go ahead and pick it up because there's a lot of food for thought here, and uh, uh, just just in a, first off, uh, uh, when you talk to Chris Kraft, you better fasten your seatbelts and hang on anyway because uh, you're in for one heck of a ride. But uh, but this was just amazing. So uh, and a lot of opinions here. Some I do agree with. Some eh, not so much. But that you know. But I think that's that's okay too. And uh, you know, either way, it was a learning experience. Exactly. We'll link that in the show notes. And rather than giving our opinions, uh, you've heard Chris Kraft's opinion. You've heard Gene's. We want to hear yours. Send us your reactions to the article. You can send it to us by email, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. You can tweet it to us at TalkingSpace or post it on our wall at Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. All right. Uh, now... This is an interesting question for you. What job could be more exciting than flying in outer space? Well, apparently such a job exists. Because there was a cosmonaut who was scheduled to go up to the International Space Station in 2015. His name is Yuri Lonchikov. Uh, he was scheduled to fly aboard TMA-16M, spend six months aboard the International Space Station. His crew was already assigned. And he is now resigning from the Corps. And uh, here is a quote from the chief of the Cosmonaut Training Center, Sergei Krikalev, who said, quote, He came up to me and said that he found a more exciting job than working in outer space, and he wrote his, resigla- and he wrote his resignation letter. Frankly, we counted on his participation because he was not just in the unit, he was assigned to the crew. Also adding, he does not understand the decision. One of the things that is interesting, though, and this is from RT.com, is a lot of it may have to do with how much they're getting paid. And I think that's a big part of it because it mentions in the article that in 2010, according to 2010 data, Russian cosmonauts earned between 130 and 150,000 US dollars per six months stay on the space station. When they were back, it was as low as $2,100 per month. That could be a part of it. Ouch. Um, wow. <laughs> but, you know, I, I saw that art, I saw that news report over the weekend and I was like, um, what, you know, I mean, seriously, uh, you found a better job. And the only thing I thought was, uh, better equals higher paying. And it looks like Sawyer that RT 
uh, uh, article uh, basically says the uh, says my suspicions are correct. But it was interesting too that this gentleman not only was assigned uh, a flight, not only as as, as uh, you know ISS crew, but it was it was it was it was a commander's position. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and now they have less than two years to find a replacement, which normally the crews are together for two, three years, sometimes even more. So part of that is bonding. Part of that is training. So now you have to train someone to command the International Space Station in less time than normal. Oops. <laughs> yeah, big oops. I'm, uh, I'm wondering how this is going to affect that particular flight, too, because I don't know where they were in training. I don't know where they were in... Uh, you know, development for the flight, but I know, you know, I mean, you hear it from astronauts all the time where crews start reading each other. They know what, how they're going to react in certain, certain deal, certain scenarios and what have you. And I don't know where they were in that, in that process. So it's, it's going to be difficult to go ahead and find some shoes big enough to fill, I guess. They'll do it, but it's, it's going to be <laughs> there. It's back up against the wall time. And keep in mind, we're talking launch was scheduled for March of 2015. We're talking very short period of time here. And uh, one of the crew members in that mission, I believe, who may be launching on that is Scott Kelly. That's correct. It was going to be the uh, beginning, I think, of the uh, the year-long flight. Uh, I kind of remember, though, too, we were in a position uh, on STS-133 where a member of the crew kind of had a little bit of a cycling accident and uh, broke something and uh, uh, could not uh, or, or damaged damaged himself pretty bad and could not join the crew all, all of a sudden and uh, uh, they had to get a replacement in there real real fast uh, and the replacement oddly enough was somebody who had flown on the previous shuttle mission so I would suspect that that might be the answer in this case where they'll go ahead and they'll take somebody who's fresh off of a flight and uh, plug that individual into this. But uh, uh, again, you know, I, I guess you know, it was code for a better job, meaning higher paying, because I don't know. I, I couldn't think my, myself uh, what better job would there be than going off about 200 miles up and having that experience and looking at the earth from that vantage point. I just, you know, how cool is that? So, but again, I guess money talks. Exactly. You think you would have waited though, but I, I still understand in a way. And that does bring this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us. Gene McCulka. Subtle reminder, guys. NASA is not over over by a long shot. I keep I, I get I get questions like that in, in 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 on the street and all that, and say, "Gee, you know, it's sad that NASA is over with." And I'm like, "Nope, it's far from over with." And I hope this program went ahead and told you that. So, you know, take you know take the, those words and go forth, guys. Yes, indeed, and thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here as always. And we are glad to have you with us, as always, and we hope that you'll be back next week. Until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. <laughs>